Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, May 17th. We begin with a look at the eligibility requirements to run for mayor in our city. With controversy surrounding mayoral candidate Kevin J. Johnson in this year's civic election, we thought it would be a good time to dig into Mm -hmm. the topic. We hear about the current system in place for eligibility from Jack Lucas, political science professor of the University of Calgary. How comfortable do you think you're going to be dining in at a restaurant when they're finally able to reopen again? We speak with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, who's a professor and senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, who talks with us about the results of a new survey on Canadians' thoughts about returning to restaurants. And the numbers are quite surprising. Is there a gender divide when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine rollout? We get details on this new battle of the sexes from Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. And finally, it's another edition of Motivational Monday. And this time out, we meet Dr. Syl Corbett, who's the author of a new book called Defunk. We get the doctor's suggestions on how to live a more inspired life and improve your brain health at the same time. 708 Mornings with Sue and Andy. With the recent news of Kevin J. Johnson running in Calgary's mayoral race, who has charges against him in both B.C. and Ontario. We're joined now by Jack Lucas, a professor of political science at the University of Calgary, to talk about whether we should be able to regulate who can and cannot enter the mayor's race. Good morning to you, Jack. Good morning. Well, let's break this down, because I think a lot of people never even had a thought about this previously to this election. Um, Are there any current eligibility requirements for candidates to run for mayor? Yes, there are. The requirements are are some requirements um to run for mayor you have to be eligible to vote in the election so all of the standard stuff that makes you eligible to vote applies to running as well you have to be above the age of 18 you have to be a canadian citizen a resident of calgary and so forth um there are also some rules about uh running if you are an employee a current employee of the city of calgary you can't uh, run without taking a, a leave of absence um and there are some slightly obscure rules about if you are um, uh, convicted, uh, if you're indebted to the city in taxes, but but uh, which which don't apply to to most people. So um, there are some requirements, uh, but uh, like I say, they're pretty minimal. And then in order to actually file your nomination papers, you have to submit a deposit of five hundred dollars for the mayoral race, and along with at least a hundred signatures. So these are. This is a bar that, uh, that, that that most people can quite easily clear. Yeah, very low bar for sure. So what if you had a criminal record already, like a, a, in place you'd been tried, convicted, and found guilty of something? Uh, there's currently no restriction on running wow. for mayor if you have been convicted, uh, have a criminal record. Um, uh, of course, there are some rules in other jurisdictions about um, a running as a, if you're currently an inmate, you can't uh, run in some jurisdictions. That's not specified explicitly in the rules for Alberta municipal elections. But no, um, you could have been tried and convicted of a criminal offense and uh, still be eligible to run. The only offense is that you can't uh, you can't run for mayor if you've been convicted of an offense under one of the elections acts. So if you've previously been convicted of, a, of an offense related to elections, like, for instance, taking illegal campaign donations or something like that in a previous election, that disqualifies you for running. But aside from that, no, nothing else. Hmm. So would it be ethical to have that conversation on whether or not people uh, should uh, have the requirement or cities rather should have the requirement so people with you know, assault uh, uh, charges or, or hate charges or serious allegations against them would not be able to run? 
You know, this is, I think it would be totally appropriate for a a city and a province, because of course many of these things are regulated by the provincial statutes um, that govern these elections, and it would be useful to have these conversations. But I think it's also entirely fair that um, governments are very hesitant about imposing these kinds of rules, because it's extremely difficult to decide what the procedure, what the rule might look like that would exclude the people we want to exclude, but also not exclude people who um, might quite legitimately want to run for office. Imagine somebody who's been convicted of a crime and they served their time and, you know, years later they choose to run for office um, uh, and they want to make a contribution to their community. You know, it may be the case we don't want to exclude that person from running. So it's challenging to think about how you design a set of procedures to exclude the right very small number of people who you would want to exclude. Yeah, slippery slope for sure. So uh, how would a decision like that be discussed and potentially implemented? Would it happen at the municipal level for a municipal election, say, or would that be something that the province would have to get involved in, or how how might that look? In terms of adding formal restrictions, um, this would be provincial. So you would have to change the Local Authorities Elections Act to add a provision to say that, for example, somebody who's been convicted of a hate crime is not eligible to run. So that would have to be uh, added to the provincial statute. Now, there are things uh, informally that, that would be less formal, but, but that the city could potentially do. Um, uh, I noticed, for example, on the nomination papers that one thing that candidates have to do is pledge to abide by the um, city's code of conduct if they are successfully elected. And, you know, I'm not sure that the city solicitor would have to do some thinking about what's possible there, but, you know, perhaps there are ways that uh, candidates could be um, excluded from information materials that the city makes available and so forth um, if there were sufficient grounds to think that uh, that they weren't going to abide by the city's code of conduct if they were successfully elected. I'm not sure what would be possible, but perhaps there are some things around the edges that the city could do. Mm-hmm. But I think, to be honest with you, most of what uh, would happen would be informal, and that applies to the city as well as to just more generally what, what people in the community can do. Professor, as a political scientist, and, and this is a, you know still five months out from the civic election, people asking about and uh, the conversation opening up about eligibility requirements for the mayor's seat. Ha- have you ever seen anything like this, not just uh, you know civically, but perhaps provincially or nationally? Yeah, you know, this is actually an emerging problem in city elections in Canada. It's becoming quite common for candidates uh, with outrageous, offensive, hateful views to uh, run for office. And the problem is is exactly what you can imagine, which is that, that these people are seeing that they have uh, potentially have access to a very large megaphone to reach a huge number of Canadians in a city of 1.3 million here in Calgary, for example. And, you know, Kevin Johnson himself ran in Mississauga in 2018, um, and um, and it became a, a big problem and a big issue there as well. And we've seen this in Toronto and in other cities also. So there is this challenge uh, right now where in a nonpartisan context, nonpartisan cities, uh, you don't have the filter of the political parties trying to weed out candidates who are going to make them uh, look look embarrassed and look bad. 
And it's a lot harder for us to decide initially, you know, which candidates should we focus our attention on and which ones should we just ignore. Mm. And so uh, it gives uh, an opportunity for candidates with these very extreme uh, views and, and hateful views to articulate their position to an audience that they wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Right. Uh, Professor, we just got a text in. Just let, let him run. He'll never get voted in anyway. That's dangerous, though, isn't it? Well, you know, it, it is dangerous in, in two respects. First of all, in Mississauga, Johnson got 13% of the vote. Now, he never had any chance of running, but 13% of the vote is a substantial yeah. fraction. You know, that's not a few hundred people uh, by any means. And so um, that's something to, to always to keep in mind. But also, you know, there's, a, there's the platform side of this, right? The opportunity to articulate views that that as a community, we 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 just, we just don't want um, we don't want to give that megaphone to a particular kinds of views. I think that's something that that all a view that that all of us share, and it was certainly the the case in these other cities to face this problem. So I think it is true that that fundamentally, you know, this is a short term problem in the sense that the person's going to run, they're going to lose, and they're going to disappear. Um, but uh, but in the meantime, they can certainly uh, stir up a lot of chaos. Mm. And and you know what? The other the other factor is that in addition to the just just, you know, giving a, a, a megaphone to these views, it's, it's also just a distraction from the real task, which is choosing someone to be mayor of the city of Calgary for the next four years. Yeah. You know, and every yeah. minute that we talk about these fringe candidates is a minute that we're not talking about the candidates who may actually become mayor. And so that's a real kind of opportunity cost that comes with having these people in the mix as well. Great point. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. That is Professor Jack Lucas, Associate Prof of Political Science at the University of Calgary. A recent survey suggests 40% of Canadians will still want to stay away from restaurants for a while. Starting this week, though, the United States government will be giving out almost $29 billion in grants to their own food service sector. If we want an active economy again, it's time we did something about it. That's a quote from Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor and Senior Director for the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. Good morning to you, Dr. Charlebois. Good morning. Well, let's break this down. Are we doing enough right now at this point? We know that the restaurants have had a tough go. Are we doing enough? Uh, I don't think we are compared to what we're seeing in Europe and and the United States. Um, uh, I think it's time uh, to think about how we can stimulate the economy. In April, we lost uh, over 200,000 jobs. And uh, and a quick way to actually create new jobs is by supporting small and medium-sized businesses, and in particular restaurants and the and the hospitality sector, because they they can draw people, they can get people to to get out of their house. Uh, we've been in hibernation for almost a year and a half now, so uh, we're going to have to break habits and get people. Uh, spending again, I guess. I think there's pent-up demand, of course. There's a lot of people with cash. But at some point, uh, I mean, cash will run out and, and, and restaurants will need the support uh, in order to accommodate people who are, you know, a little bit more cautious. There's a lot of people who are willing to get out, but there's still a lot of people who are very cautious about going out. Can you break down those numbers a little bit for us? The, the survey that was done by the Agri-Foods Analytics Lab and Angus Reid and, and talk to us a little bit about, you know, what Canadians are feeling like when it comes to restaurants and, and eating out? Yeah, we just surveyed last week uh, oh, more than 1,500 Canadians, and uh, we realized that uh, 40% of Canadians actually are, are still 
going to be avoiding restaurants for the time being. Uh, so, uh, but 30% are actually willing to go out. Uh, also, 30% of Canadians are actually actually still they're willing to go out, but uh, very cautiously. So that's 60%. So the, the 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 population is almost split in Alberta in particular. Um, 34% of Albertans are actually willing to go out, which is actually lower than the national average. So uh, there's there's a lot of work to be done there, I think, to reassure people who are a little bit uh, concerned about the virus and in particular the variants that we're hearing about. Dr. Charlebois, this morning the stat came out that about 18 million Canadians have had their first jab or at least one uh, jab, not, not the complete uh, two. Uh, but having said that, uh, it's not going to be a flip of the switch when uh, people have these vaccinations. So do you think that we're going to continue to see some of these things that were implemented like curbside pickup and the secondary delivery services continuing over the next several months or maybe next year? Oh, I think so. Uh, I think uh, online business for the food industry, both retail and service, uh, is going to continue to be quite active across the country. Uh, we actually are working on another report, <laughs> which will outline exactly that point. Uh, yeah, the, the bricks and mortar business is, is good, but I think uh, that a lot of people have actually enjoyed and appreciated uh, online services across the country. So we're not expecting that to disappear anytime. So if people are hesitant then, Dr. Charlebois, how do we incentivize to get Canadians out of their homes and get back to the restaurants and buying food when that the time has come? I, I think it, it, changing the narrative would be helpful. Uh, when you look at the mayor of London in England this morning, going out, eating breakfast at different places, it was quite reassuring. And, and frankly, uh, when you see that kind of political leadership, uh, playing an active role in the economy, I actually think it's it's going to help people think about what they can do to help uh, different businesses. It's of course it's great to to to, to actually pick up uh, food or actually get your food delivered, but it's also very important to to get out and and, and be active, especially. We're, we're in the spring now, summer's coming. I think it's time for people to exercise and get out and, and spend as well. Good stuff. Thanks for your time this morning. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, professor and senior director for the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. You know, it begs the question. So how are folks feeling right now? All we're able to do is, you know, order curbside pickup, that sort of thing. But when we're able again and you go back to restaurants and fully reopen and we can get back in there, is anybody hesitant or are folks really ready for that? I don't want to cook for myself anymore, so I'm really excited about it. But are people worried? Is there concern or will you be going back to restaurants ASAP? Well, and that survey was, you know, in the past 10 days or so, 1,500 people, as Dr. Charlebois said, so I'm wondering if we say today's May 17th, how about June 1st? If, for example, June 1st, they said restaurants, not just the patios maybe, but like you could actually go to the restaurants. Yeah. How comfortable would you be? Yeah. Text line open for you at 403-974-8255. Love to hear your thoughts. 720, have you had your COVID-19 vaccination yet? Well, according to new data from Health Canada, more women answered yes to that question than men. With details on the gender divide when it comes to the vaccine rollout, we're joined this morning by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning, Dr. J. Good morning. Tell us a little bit more about this research, would you? Well, it seems that right off the hop, women have been much better at getting vaccinations and that 
seems to occur in all the age groups until you hit about age 70, where it seems to level off a bit more. But this is how it started. This is how it remains. And, and we don't know if it actually the men will catch up at some point or there always will be a gender divide. Do we know why, Dr. Jair? Is it the same uh, reason yeah. that my wife is always going to the doctor and every two, three years she yeah. says you should get going? I think it's a little bit of that. So I'm going to use my own theory here. Uh, women access uh, healthcare much more efficiently and much more appropriately than men. That's a huge assumption and generalization, but it's true. So I think this is just another example of that, where women are, have carried a lot of, uh, much more of the burden of COVID, much more of the burden of the pandemic has fallen on them, and and maybe a little bit less on guys. So guys are still not as organized still yeah i'll get to it and uh, maybe i'm still waiting to see what's going to happen and so just a little bit sitting on the fence um and whereas women are getting in getting it done getting the job done essentially and for some background too with a, a recent gallup poll done that men think you know individual choice is is more an issue than public health per se yeah so uh, again if you look at vaccine hesitancy there's a couple of groups that come out uh, in these studies, and one is called the Freedom Fighter Group, and the other is the Exceptionalism Group, and they're predominated by men. So if you're talking about somebody who believes in that populism theory, you know, I will do it, I will, you know, it's for the greater good of mankind, and I don't believe in elite politics and the government, that's male-dominated. And this Exceptionalism Group is... Uh, that's okay for everyone else except me because I'm special or I'm different or my case is, does, fits outside the norm. And much more guys fit into that category. So those two groupings are male-dominated, and they're the ones who are very hesitant to get vaccines. I understand it's expected to flatten out as we uh, see the vaccine more widespread. Is that right? Well, we, we hope so because if we're trying to get herd immunity, if we're trying to get there, we need guys to buck up and get in there. Uh, and and carry their share of the burden here because if it's always at 10 percent or that does not uh, uh, close i think we're going to have more and more trouble so guys need to get out need to get their vaccine and get on it is it also about a sense of urgency dr j in terms of you know women we're like okay we need to get this done now and guys you know kind of sitting back and chilling for a little while and figuring it out yeah totally i i totally believe that to be the case and that again that's a huge generalization and certainly not true of everyone but I think in this case, that's sort of what's happening. Uh, if this has a direct impact on my job status, on my family, and my, I'm in there getting getting it done. If I don't really care about that, or it's not that important to me, yeah, I, I can afford to wait, or you know, and, and be confused by the science, which changes literally week to week. And I'm just going to wait a little bit longer and see how it all shakes out. Good stuff. Thanks for your time this morning, Doctor J. Okay, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. At 608 on your Monday morning, looking to elevate your smarts as part of Motivation Monday, we're looking inside the pages of a book dedicated to helping you lead a more inspired life and improve your brain health. Dr. Syl Corbett is a neuroscientist and exercise physiologist at the University of Calgary and joins us now with details on her new book, Defunk. Good morning, doctor. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. All right, let's talk about it first. Let's kick off with the title. What does defunk mean to you? Well, I think so many these days, it's a pervasive funk everybody has landed in. Well, so many people. So this is my effort to help change that entire situation. I think we're all in that funk, but it's also worth noting on the cover, 
it says defunk, and the, and the K is falling off. So I think you're, yeah, it indicates you want to turn things around. Let's talk about, you know, the genesis behind the book. Tell us your personal story and what led you to write this. Well, actually, I had been through a pretty tough health journey over the past uh, year and a half, and I had that pandemic in the back. Oh, Sil, hang on. We're we're going to stop you there. We've lost. We were. You're uh, really cutting out. Can't understand you. Maybe we oh, should. We have you. Lo- have you lo- Are you there again? Sure, I oh. sure am. Okay, I think we got you. You sound a little more clear there. Can sorry. Can you start again on on your answer because we couldn't understand. Um. Yeah. So I had a health issue. I think we're going to have to call Sil back. Yeah, Sil, we're going to call you right back. Okay, so hang tight. Oh, Our uh, Brian will call you right back. Okay. Okay, perfect. Thank you. You know, that is uh, the way it is these days. Normally, um, in the world of radio, we would at all times have our guest in studio whenever possible. But over the past year, we've lost that ability, obviously. We can't have guests. Had some guests say, are you sure I can't come in? And we say, no, no, we're sure you can't come in. We are barely allowed in the building. 93% of the staff within our uh, chorus building here is not uh, able to come in. But nevertheless, the the book, if you flip through it, it is, uh, it's about 125 pages. And there's a lot packed into this. Oh, All right. do we have her back? We okay. have Dr. Sil Corbett again. Sorry about that. I think hopefully we've got a better connection. Let's try this again, shall we? Okay. All right. Explain to us, you know, what, what your impetus behind writing this book. Yeah, I had a health issue uh, about a year and a half ago, and I used certain strategies that really, really helped me. And then with the pandemic in the background, so many friends, uh, it was like this pervasive funk. I thought, well... The best thing I can do is actually instead of helping, you know, people one-on-one, I could actually write about it and I'd have a, a much greater reach. So that was the, that's the intention to help as many people as I can. And then with your science background, obviously, a neuroscientist, it's really all about the brain. So talk to us about how, you know, meaning and purpose it links to the brain and then in turn links to our own mental health. Well, I think looking at certain challenges, you have to look beyond yourself, beyond the immediate. And despite, you know, some immediate challenges, there is a greater purpose. And identifying that, certainly, it puts things in perspective. So, you know, no matter what happens to us in life, we have a perspective, we have a choice. And I think that's really an, an empowering thing is not just things happening to us, but actually how we react to these issues. So a challenge might just be, um, actually looked at as an opportunity. And I think now is the perfect time to, to have that mental shift. Mm-hmm. And w- one of your specialties is working with professional athletes. So I'm wondering, can we draw parallels between a professional athlete and, and an everyday Calgarian, for example, who is struggling? Well, I think, you know, professional athletes are, you know, they're, they're humans too. And I think even somebody in the corporate world, I mean, they have to perform on a daily basis as well. So they have, you know, different kind of pressures, but similar pressures. And I think adopting these strategies, it doesn't matter who you are. I think it's it's basically you want to improve your overall health. And I, it gives you that resiliency that any kind of, you know, from a recreational to a professional athlete or to a corporate executive, we all need these um Basically, we all need these strategies to become that much more resilient and improve our quality of life. You have keys in your book or topics that you focus your chapters on. So give us some of those that might help us, everyday people, kind of develop a a stronger mental health. I think establishing very good habits, healthy habits. We do so many things in rote. So it's basically like, 
you know, adopt these habits, just maybe walk first thing when you get up. You don't even have to think about it. Go for a walk, you know, so you don't even think about it at 10 a.m. Or, or you have snacks, healthy snacks around you, you know, very easy to implement. Or when you feel like stress is coming on, do a little meditative practice, just a little breathing routine, which you can do. And then establishing some kind of laughter in your daily life, I think is so important, so often overlooked as adults. So just, I think checking these off the list, they're very, very simple things to do, um, but you can make a massive difference overall. Yeah, and you mentioned some of these simplified things, as you as you mentioned, like like sleep, for example, that we might not think is a, a tool. You know, we we sleep every night, but the importance of, of, of quality sleep as well. It's absolutely critical to overall health, and I think it's being, you know, initially a little bit disciplined about going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time. So it has a tremendous impact in our overall well-being, our immunity. You know, people think it's, oh, idle time under the covers, but it's actually our brain does tremendous things. It basically cleans out, you know, it was discovered probably about only about eight years ago, actually, what is going on in the brain. And we have this, it's like a flush washing out toxins out of our brain. That happens at night. So we have to have these restful nights. And if you shortchange yourself on during the night, you really compromise during the day. So I think that's one of the easy things to do is just, Basically, turn off all devices by, you know, let's say 10 a.m., absolutely, and uh, lights out and ensure you get the best quality sleep possible. It will certainly help your mental health throughout the day. So speaking of the brain, talk to us about the word connectome. It's not something I'd ever read before until I got into your book. So tell us what that means. Well, in literal terms, the brain connectome is actually the connection between areas, different areas throughout the brain, like these white matter tracks where information gets make transmitted from one area to the next but figuratively speaking you know the connectome is really the human connectome it's beyond the confines of one individual skull it affects all of us we're not individuals we need each other to survive not just as infants but as adults and so it's important to broaden and strengthen that connectome beyond yourself and make as many connections as possible especially especially these days to reach out and you know help other people just enrich your life by establishing, you know, really, really strong connections beyond yourself. So who do you think should pick up this book, Sel? Well, I actually think, you know, originally it was for people that are struggling, but I, I really think it's for anyone that wants to improve their overall health and quality of life. It's a great book. It's a, an easy read. You've done a ton of research, obviously, but it's, it's, you've pre, you're presenting it in a fun way. So highly recommend it. It's called Defunk, the letter D-Funk. And uh, people can go online at d-funk-it.com. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Real pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. That is Dr. Syl Corbett, a neuroscientist and exercise physiologist at the U of C.